thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Coming up to 25 to 10 here on the Really Hlabi Show with me, Deborah Patter, standing in for Reedy and taking your calls. We were discussing accountability. And just to end that off, great tweet from Elias and Kunyana. He says, accountability does not depend on who does it first. Two wrongs don't make a right. What we were taught as children. Well, joining us now, um, a man who is definitely more right than wrong, is the naked scientist, Chris Smith, back with us this week. And we are opening your lines to take, opening our lines to take your science questions on basically any subject. But Chris, my producer, Nalwazi, tells me you have an amazing story about growing a kidney in a dish. Yeah, good morning, Deb. This is a good one. Um, Some of these discoveries that we talk about each week are more important than others. This one's a real game changer. About one person in ten during their lifetime in the average country will have problems with their kidneys. And although we can replace kidney function with a machine, it's called dialysis, Mm. it's not a very good replacement. It leaves people feeling unwell, it leaves people feeling very tired, and it tethers them to a machine. And it's incredibly expensive. And it's incredibly expensive. And we want to be able to replace kidneys for people so that they they have freedom from that and obviously freedom from their bank manager pursuing them Mm. as well. Mm. And one way to do that is to try to grow new kidneys because we know that written into the instructions in the cells that make our bodies in our DNA must be the recipe which tells the developing embryo how to produce kidneys in the first place. So what we would really like to do is to take a cell from an adult and grow them a new kidney by recapitulating the environment that those cells found themselves in during development so they grow new kidneys. A lady called Melissa Little, and she's based at the Murdoch Children's Institute in Melbourne, Australia, she's got a paper in Nature this week where they achieve just this. What they've done is they take initially a skin cell called a fibroblast, they use established genetic techniques to reprogram this skin cell so it becomes a stem cell, a bit like what would be in an early embryo again. Then, using very carefully controlled culture conditions and supplying the right growth factors at the right time and in the right order, you can fool this population of stem cells into believing they're in what would have been the developing kidney in a developing fetus, and they produce a new miniature kidney in the dish and although the tissue that they produce is very small at this stage it's only about half a centimeter across seen down a microscope you can see all of the little tubes where the blood vessels are you can see the little tubes where you would filter blood and produce urine so it does appear to be a genuine kidney that's being produced now it's a question as uh, as melissa put it to me of, of bioengineering in order to make it bigger so that we have something we could implant into people and make sure we have a system for the urine to be collected into so that it can then be plumbed in but this is the first major step towards being able mm. to grow new kidneys outside the body which are tailor-made to a person this is this this really is incredible because i think one of the stories i mean certainly in the time that i've been a journalist um so many stories about people waiting 
waiting for um, a kidney, waiting for an organ donor, you know, and, and, and they, so you can't just get a kidney. I mean, it's somebody who firstly has to say that if I die, that my organs um, can be used. Um, and so many people have failed and you get put on a list. I mean, something like this, as you say, is an absolute game changer and is really what science is all about when we talk about science for the good, isn't it? I, I think it is. And the other thing that, that's really important about this is that whilst it's in the long term being able to grow a new kidney to order, in the near term, what it does enable scientists to do is to produce a replica of the kidney that a patient already has and then test on a dish kidney various drugs that they might like to give to that patient either to remedy their kidney disease or treat something like cancer because some drugs are extremely nephro, in other words, kidney toxic. Giving those drugs could demolish a person's kidneys, but other people might manage quite well. Finding new drugs in the first place that won't damage the kidneys mm -hmm. is very hard mm -hmm. unless you put them into a person and therefore risk those side effects. You can now do that in the dish quite safely. You can also come up with new therapies that might slow down or halt a person's kidney disease that's causing them to have a problem in the first place by modelling their kidney in a dish and trying various therapies in parallel on a massive scale all at once to, to speed up the process of drug discovery. What an incredible, incredible um, uh, concept. I mean, that really is fantastic to hear that. And certainly it's such an amazing time to be living when there, you know, all these kinds of discoveries and developments are possible. Chris, some calls coming through and some SMSs. Um, let me, let me pick up one of the SMSs here. Uh, I don't, are you able to answer this? What was before the Big Bang? <laughs> well, at the moment, we don't know. The Big Bang happened 13.8 billion years ago, and this is what we judge to be the moment of creation. Mm. This is the time at which the universe that we live in is judged to have begun existing. Prior to that, there was no universe. The Big Bang invented, if you like, or created our universe. But whether or not this is a cyclical phenomenon where at the moment our universe is expanding and getting bigger, in the future it will implode, shrink down and collapse in on itself and then perhaps the process begins again. At the moment we don't know. We don't know whether we're the only universe or whether there is this phenomenon of parallel universes, another universe hovering mm. just a few millimetres in front of our face but in a different dimension we can't interact with it. Perhaps gravity can spread between the two and tell us they're there. We don't know. But until we have the answers to those questions and, and as one cosmologist said to me the other day when we were having this sort of conversation we think we ultimately will know it's at the moment early days but we we have got some ways of probing what happened during those very early stages of the formation of the universe the moment we don't know in the future we probably will and then maybe i'll be able to give you a better answer yeah. to that question in 20 years it, the incredible thing is i imagine sort of a hundred years from now people looking back to 2015 and thinking how primitive they were they didn't know that there was a parallel universe that there was you know different understandings of time because um, we just simply weren't capable of it. Some of the calls coming through. Rosh on the line from Santon, you've got a call for the Naked Scientist. Go ahead. Hello, hi. Yeah, I'm phoning from Thornton in Cape Town. Um, very much a down-to-earth uh, question here, and if you hear noises of bricks being knocked around and grinders, then it's, it's to do with this question. Um, I'm very concerned because every time we do work and the, the builders use these uh, fantastic diamond saws to get into uh, the bricks. They create a fine dust, and this dust adheres to just about every single surface in the house, books, floors, you name it. 
uh, whereas the more coarse dust that one might create doesn't adhere nearly so um, so uh, strongly to the surfaces. And I wonder why this was. Go ahead, Chris. What Good is morning. the reason? Well, there's a number of reasons for this. On the one hand, if you make coarse dust, then by definition the particles are bigger, so they're heavier, and there's fewer of them. And if there's fewer of them, they can coat less things and they can get less close to the surfaces and so they're actually harder to stick on things because they're, they're big particles, they can be brushed off more easily. If you use one of these very fine, high-powered saws, then they produce many, many more particles that are much, much smaller. These, therefore, can penetrate all over the place. They drift around on the air and get everywhere where the big particles would find it harder to get to. Because they're smaller, they get closer to the surface that they're landing on. They can, therefore, interact more strongly with that surface and get into more of the nooks and crannies in that surface, making those surfaces harder to clean. Mm -hmm. And this includes you, because when you breathe these particles in... If you do this day in, day out, and you're using these tools, it's really important to protect yourself with a breathing mask because they will go inside you, and over a lifetime of occupational exposure, you can build up these things inside your lungs, and you get something called pneumoconiosis or silicosis, depending upon the sorts of materials you're working on. And pneumoconiosis, is another word for that, is coal miner's lung. When we look at the lungs of people who have had a lifetime exposure to coal mines, coal dust, industrial dust, urban living their lungs are actually quite literally black. Wow. Okay, from an SMS, um, is it true that astronauts can't burp in space? Well, they can actually, because we, we've asked them. Uh, and we did actually, <laughs> on The Naked Scientist, we've just launched a series which we're going to do. Well, we have, yeah. Um, we, we've, um, we've started a series on The Naked Scientist, which you can get as a podcast. We're calling it Mars Month, because uh, there's never been a better time to really consider the prospect of us sending astronauts to Mars. And so over the next month, we're considering where we get astronauts from, how we get astronauts across big distances in space, and then how we're going to establish colonies on another planet. And towards that end, the first programme looked at how we recruit astronauts. Just last week, it's out at the moment. And uh, one of the issues is about floating around in microgravity and feeling pretty sick. And you can certainly throw up um, in space very effectively because astronauts consume more antiemetics per capita than anyone else on Earth when they're in space. In other words, drugs that stop you feeling sick. Um, and, and you can burp, but I, I think the word that they use is you burp cautiously because of course the bubbles don't rise to the surface and the, and the puke doesn't sink below it so if you're not careful that you you can get what they call reflux okay, uh, so you have so to burp great. cautiously it's a bit like <laughs> farting cautiously if you know what i mean it's the sort of uh, upper end equivalent thank you for that julia on the line from rosebank your question for chris hi deborah hi chris go ahead I just wanted to find out, is it true that turning off your geyser in order to save electricity is actual, actually um, futile, given that the geyser might in fact use up more electricity to heat up already cold water? Well, this is a, quite a commonly uh, asked question. And things you have to bear in mind are that energy is neither created nor made. If you leave your hot water tank hot all the time, then there's always a steady flow of energy away from the water into the environment because the insulation around the tank isn't perfect. So you will be losing heat from the tank all the time. If you turn it off when you're not using it, then the water temperature slowly falls and eventually it falls to the same temperature as the room and it therefore ceases to lose any more energy to the room. 
when you turn it back on again, it doesn't use more energy just to heat the water up because the water uses exactly the same amount of energy to heat it up per gram of water, per cc of water, uh, as it would when it was hot. The only difference is that hotter water loses energy faster because there's a steeper gradient between the water tank and the room. So if you're not using the hot water for extended periods of time, it's probably a good idea to shut it off because there's no point in just literally warming up the room and then having to get rid of the excess heat with aircon because you're not actually benefiting from that. So I would argue it's better to think about when you use the water, turn it on when you need it, turn it off when you don't need it, and if you can get away with it, try and put a solar panel in. Okay, Sammy has a question for you. Go ahead, Sammy. Uh, yes, thank you, Deborah and Chris. Uh, I just wanted to find something. I realise that um, as we've been experiencing this heat wave, during the day, if it was in winter, we'd, they would say the weather is about 15 degrees and we would almost freeze to death. But why is it that at night, when the weather is 15 degrees, we can barely sleep because, it's, because of the heat? Go ahead. Well, the, the difference is that when you go to bed at night, then a number of things happen. One is that hopefully you've got some blankets on your bed, and this thermally insulates you from the ambient temperature. In other words, it puts a barrier between your body temperature at 37 degrees-ish and the room temperature of 15 degrees and that slows down the rate of heat loss and therefore you stay warm. Clothing does a similar thing during the day. As you go to sleep at night, your body temperature falls anyway a little bit, so your body actually is losing energy slightly more slowly at night, and when you sleep, actually you are unconscious, so you're less aware that you're losing that heat and you don't feel cold at night because your body's expecting to be a little bit colder. So I think there's a number of things to consider here. Um, when you're out during the day, in the exposure, in the environment, and losing heat to the environment on a cold day, you notice and you tend to wrap up. When you go to bed at night, you're in an enclosed space, and although it's cooler, you're still covering yourself up with lots of blankets that mean that you lose heat much more slowly. So although the room is cooler, actually under the blankets you're pretty warm. But Sammy, Chris is from the UK, so they don't know about overheating much there. <laughs> uh, I get it. Thank you, Deborah. Thank um, you. We don't know about overheating at all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Chris, another SMS that's coming through here. Can you prove or disprove free will? This eternal fascination with, you know, who controls us? Does anyone control us? Um, can you prove or disprove free will? Mm, difficult question. Why do we do what we do? We do what we do because we have a brain which makes decisions. What does it do to make decisions? Well, it bases its reaction to a stimulus, the outside world, on prior knowledge and prior learning, and that's superimposed on some hard wiring. If you look at animals, for example, certain animals do certain things ritualistically. Birds build nests. No one's ever taught them to build a nest a bird knows, in inverted commas, how to build a nest, and this is because hardwired into its brain is that nesting behaviour. There are mice and voles that dig holes. No one teaches them how to do that. They actually do that because their genes dictate that they should. But you can twink those genes and actually make voles that will dig different shaped holes, in fact, scientists have now found. They know what the genes are that do this. So, in other words, your brain has a sort of default setting a bit like a computer comes with an operating system installed, but then you can install applications on top and you can program the computer to do other stuff. 
I think our brain probably can be thought of the same way. It comes with a, an operating system installed which boots up and makes you run, but then you can reprogram it, you can adapt it, upgrade it, adjust it, and then you can respond to the stimuli that come in from outside in your own way. I don't know if that answers the question adequately, but it's certainly my way of viewing the world. We're taking your calls to the Naked Scientist here on Talk Radio 702, 011 or SMS 31702, and Cape Talk 567, 021-446-0567, or SMS 31567, or you can tweet me at Deborah Pat- De- at Deborah underscore Patter or at Radio 702. A tweet that's come through here uh, from Tabo Mashejo. Why are flies attracted to bad odor? Well, flies, like many insects, have a very, very powerful sense of smell. And they don't have noses, but they do have antennae. And you can see this on a moth, for example, these things that protrude off of their head and they look fluffy. Those antennae are festooned with nerve endings which are covered themselves with chemical receptors. These are effectively molecular docking stations that are sensitive to certain shaped molecules and when those molecules dock with the receptor they send a barrage of impulses down the nerve fibre telling the fly about that smell. And because the flies have two antennae, they can actually resolve the smells across the two antennae. They also have certain patterns of flying backwards and forwards across a smell trail, and they can detect in which direction the smell gets stronger and in which direction the smell gets weaker. And they adjust their behaviour, therefore, to home in on a smell. They know, in inverted commas, that certain smells coincide with certain food sources and good places to lay their eggs if you've got a certain smell that smells like dung and you're a fly that wants to lay its eggs in something that will be a food source and a source of security for your larvae when you lay them and where you have a good chance of finding another fly to mate with if you all home in on the same sort of thing you're going to find yourself in the ideal environment to do mating and dating and egg laying and therefore a good place to lay your eggs for your larvae so that's what the flies do so uh, make sure you smell good. Uh, what's the point of going to Mars? Drew wants to know. Drew? Yeah, what is the point of wanting to go and establish a settlement on Mars? Things are bad enough here. Why do you want to start another one that's way up in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> Hi, Drew. Well, I think that's entirely the point, that once we've, um, I think it's a get-out clause, once we've finished destroying the one planet we have got, we want to go and do it to another planet. <laughs> um, the answer is that in the same way that people go mountaineering because it's there, people want to see if we can stretch ourselves and establish a base on another planet because it's there. That's part of the motivation. But uh, I'm a big supporter of this kind of blue skies, big thinking, for a number of simple reasons. The foremost among them is that when you do stretch yourself in this way, when you push the envelope, what you actually do is inevitably have to solve problems which are hard problems and by solving them you inevitably make life better for everybody. It sounds a bit trivial and trite but the fact that we all have Wi-Fi, the fact that you can sit in your house and you can browse the internet from the comfort of your armchair instead of having to go and plug in a computer to a wire in the wall, is thanks to radio astronomy. Scientists trying to probe the distant reaches of the universe had to come up with protocols to make their equipment talk to each other and pass data around. The spin-off from that, we now have 
radio astronomy going into Wi-Fi. In the same way that we have the Large Hadron Collider at CERN generating huge amounts of data, terabytes, petabytes of data every week, which need storing, scientists have had to come up with very good ways of sharing huge amounts of data, storing huge amounts of data and processing huge amounts of data. That's resulted actually in the World Wide Web and, and the grid around the world so that we can transfer information between computers. We're all the beneficiary. So if we do try and push technologies in these ways, inevitably, in solving those hard problems that get us on these challenges, we can then bring that technology home back down to earth and employ it here for the great and good and the benefit of the many. An SMS, Chris, for you from Tina. Please tell me, why do I get a little shock every night when I cover my parrot cage with a thin blanket? Well, the blanket's probably got synthetic materials in it, and when you rub the synthetic materials against themselves, then you asymmetrically separate charges. To put that into plain English, you end up with a transfer of positive and negative charges into different parts of the material, and because it is an insulator, it's not a conducting material, you get a build-up of charge in one place that's one charge, and a build-up of charge in another place that's different charge, and when you touch them, that charge jumps onto you and transfers some of itself to you, because you supply or provide a route down to earth and you get a static electric shock so perhaps change the blanket in this particular case and look for something that doesn't have some uh, I reassure the parrot as well I hope the parrot's <laughs> not too traumatised by the lightning flashes going on around the cage um, Rohan on the line from Hermanus Hi Deborah. Um, my question for the naked scientist is why do we see the same stars at night if the earth is rotating uh, as as today and night, and then is rotating around the sun as well. Um, come winter and summer, you should surely see a different set of stars at night. I'll listen yeah, on the radio. It's slightly hard to, to get your head around this at first, but if you think about it, the stars that you see out there are, there's two sorts of stars. There are the stars that don't move and the stars that do move. And the ancient Greeks realised this. They called the stars that do move planetes, which means wanderers, and they were the stars that did move relative to the Earth. Those are our sister planets in our solar system that are obviously orbiting the Sun as well as we are. So relative to us, their positions move th throughout the year and therefore uh, they're here in different places relative to the other fixed stars in the night sky hence planetes, wanderers. But the other stars that you can see are distant stars, uh, literally stars like our sun, in other systems elsewhere in our galaxy, the Milky Way. We're making, uh, in the grand scheme of things, a, re a relatively short, small journey around our star. And so relative to us, the distance to those far stars isn't terribly huge. And so it doesn't really matter where in our orbit around our own sun we are, you're still looking at the same patches of sky when the Earth turns around and shows you those patches of sky. So you still see the same stars relative to each other in the same sorts of positions. The only difference is that relative to the planets, they will have moved, but relative to each other, they won't have done. Okay, this is quite difficult to get, but when you think about it in more depth, uh, we're not going to have more time to ask some great questions coming through. The, the half hour just flies by with the Naked Scientist. Chris, as always, thank you so much. I mean, it's just fascinating it's a to pleasure. listen to you. 
Thanks, Deborah. Great. Bye-bye. Cheers. That was The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, and he'll be back again next week on your radio with your questions. Do phone in. I like this one uh, from Spoo, who says he's unable to do the things he used to do in the gym. He's 34 and getting sluggish. Is he getting old or is he just lazy? <laughs> Work harder, Spoo. You're only 34. We don't need a naked scientist to tell you that one. Thanks, everyone, for those great questions. Coming up after 10, we will be having Justice Malala talking about the big upcoming ANC meeting. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.